morning we continue in 1 Corinthians and and Paul is, is in a section as we talked about last week we were dealing with sexual immorality and and he gave a strong and, and a strong warning against sexual immorality of any kind and today he moves to talking about marriage and and parents I want to give the the same um, notice that I did last week that if you have young children in here part of what Paul talks about is the physical side of marriage and so if you'd Rather, your young children not be in here for this. Um, we're just going to study God's Word and continue through, and so um, just be aware. read a story of a, a daughter who had been married for about a month, and she, she was in a situation where she had her first just knockdown, blowout fight with her husband. So she calls her mom, and, and her mom and dad are there, and her dad knows that it's his daughter, and um, gives the phone to mom. She goes, I want to talk to mom. Mom goes in the, the back room and they're talking and uh, only for about three or four minutes. And mom comes out and dad's nervously pacing. He goes, what, what's going on? And she said, well, they're, they're, they're not doing well. They're having a fight. Oh, okay. Because she, she wants to come home. She's done. Dad says, well, what did you tell her? I said, you are home. Think about it. Speaking of where she was with her husband, that is her home. And that was her answer. It wasn't 30 minutes of how bad her husband was. It was, you are home. It's time to work it out. This is the place God has you. And so this is what God is going to use to sanctify you, to refine you. You are home. We live in a world where marriage is under fire. Where, where we have things attacking marriages from all sides. Like we talked about last week, the whole area of sexuality is a direct attack on the sanctity of marriage and on the foundation of marriage. We have for the first time in history at our State of the Union address the idea of gay marriage being celebrated and lauded. This is a historic time and not in a good way. Marriage is under fire. But marriage was created by God. Marriage is designed by God for those that He calls to marriage to, to be part of their lives, to be how they glorify Him. And so we want to come today to say, what does God have to say about marriage and some specific areas of marriage? Lasting marriages are rare in our society. It was one time Susie and I were getting a car worked on and we're sitting there and we're just holding hands and talking. Nothing real real major and the guy says wow you guys must be newlyweds we aren't newlyweds if you know us we we just celebrated 24 years together and and it wasn't that we were all over each other in public or anything like that the the thing was is they saw that we were communicating and talking you know it's sort of nice to do things like that and it was so strange that he says wow you guys must be newlyweds Think about some of the thought process behind that. One of the assumptions there is that only newlyweds are deeply in love. Only newlyweds have that connection and that intimacy. And I'm here this morning to say that's not how God planned it. Now, He did plan it for newlyweds as well, but He planned for it to get better and better the longer we're married, the deeper we know each other. I am amazed every day that my wife knows every part of me and she still loves me. Just as I'm amazed, my God knows every part of me and He still loves me and chose to save me. So marriage is something we want to hold in high esteem. 
last week we were talking about sexual immorality and its attack on the person, its attack on the soul, the attack on the church, attack on marriages. And so, as we went through that, it's a strong statement of beware, be careful, no, there is no good sex outside of marriage. It is always against God's will. And this week, Paul begins chapter 7 with the balance to that. Something that's important for us to remember that is vital for us to teach our young people for the sake of their purity. And he begins by saying, well, here's the boundaries within, within which physical intimacy was designed by God. And so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at some of those boundaries, some of God's design. Because in the end, it's a design that helps us have better marriages, that helps us have lasting marriages. And we have a situation where he's addressing at the church of Corinth this morning in a short span of 16 verses. He's going to address those that are married, those that are single, and those that are looking to end a marriage. He's going to talk about relationships this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, we'll start there. And it starts by saying, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, And he starts with that because he's probably answering some questions that they have written to him. And this marks a new section in 1 Corinthians where Paul has been laying a groundwork in chapters 1 through 6, and now he's answering some of the questions that they've asked in in chapters 7 and on. And the question is the second half of verse 7. And ESV probably has it right here where it puts it in quotes just like we saw last week that this was probably something that the people at the church at Corinth were saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And you can see why Paul is following this on the discussion of sexual immorality. Because some in the church, like we talked last week, were struggling with the cultural aspect that sex outside of marriage is okay. And they were just going that direction and not even thinking. And so Paul deals with that. But others, and the pendulum swings, doesn't it? We, we go from one side to the other. Others in the church are saying, well, if, if sexual immorality is wrong, then all physical intimacy is wrong, even in marriage. And, and somehow it looks, and we know from, from history, that there were people that then would elevate that to you're more spiritual if you're able to divorce yourself from the, the physical side of things. And Paul here wants to answer that right after talking about sexual immorality, because he's like, no, 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 no. Physical intimacy is created by God, but within certain boundaries, within certain guidelines. It is good. It is is a beautiful thing that God has given a gift, but within the boundaries that He has given. Because outside of the boundaries, as we talked about last week, is destruction, is disaster. But within the boundaries, it's exactly what God intended. And so Paul says, or Paul begins to answer this question. Some have said, well, maybe this is Paul's statement because Paul is single. We're going to get to that in the passage. Um, That it's good not to, NIV I think translates that good not to be married. But then there's a footnote because the Greek actually is, is saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And since Paul argues in the next verses that it is a good thing in marriage, it's best to view this as the question the Corinthian church is asking. So we move to, to verses two through five. And we see some principles for the married. And point number one in your notes is he's talking to the married people in the church. Protect your marriage 
by preserving and prioritizing God's designed intimacy within it. I know, sort of a long sentence. But protect your marriage by preserving and prioritizing God's designed intimacy within it. So let's start at verse 2 and see, okay, what does he have to say about that? A word about the structure of 2 through 5. I know we've talked about chiasms before, and some of you are like, oh no, here we go with the whole language and literature thing. Um, chiasms are basically when an author makes a point here and a point here, same point. And then within that makes this another point, and it's the same point, and he mirrors it. And then finally, it comes down to an arrow to the main thought or the main thrust of what he's saying. And that's what we have in verses 2 through 5 here. And so we're going to see that there's a parallel between verse 2 and the end of 5. There's a parallel between verse 3 and the beginning of verse 5. And it all points to verse 4 as a key verse to the topic of physical intimacy within marriage. And so for our notes, I basically just have the three points and we'll take A and A prime. You see that as sort of verse 5 and then we'll do B and C. But that's all just sort of structure stuff. But it's helpful for us to understand where Paul's going with it. First, in verse 2, let's start there. But because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the point A there, Paul's saying we need to pursue physical intimacy within marriage to fight against sexual temptations. Pursue physical intimacy within marriage to fight against sexual temptations. Jump down to the end of verse 5 and you see the same point worded a little differently. But then come together again, and he's speaking physically, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what we see here is, especially after the topic that Paul has just talked about, in a, in a, a sexually charged culture, the temptations are everywhere. And Paul is saying that's one of the reasons for physical intimacy in marriage to protect yourselves, to guard yourselves against that. To the church at Corinth, don't give that up. That's an important part of how God has created marriage. That's not the only reason to get married. Some, some authors have said, well, sort of a low view of marriage, that the only reason to get married is because we, we want the physical side of things. It's not what Paul is saying here. This is just one of many reasons. But he's dealing specifically with protecting and guarding our marriages against the world's influence. And he says you need to be with each other. You need to be close. In verse 2 there, where it says each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, the word have there is, is a very specific usage of the word to, to specifically say and directly say husbands and wives, you should be together physically. It's interesting because this also gives us a, a definition of marriage, doesn't it? One man, one woman. It's right there in God's Word. That's his definition of what, what a marriage should be and what makes it work. And so these are the boundaries that he gives to combat immorality. Outside of marriage, and remember the presuppositions. I think I forgot to go over those in your notes. The presuppositions, last week he talked about that physical intimacy is like glue. It's a joining of souls. And it's bringing two souls together and intermingling them and joining them together just as every other part of marriage and emotions and spiritually. It's the glue that cements the bonds of marriage and that commitment together. One of the illustrations that I sort of like, and every illustration breaks down, but I like the illustration of a gingerbread house. Have you guys ever built gingerbread houses? 
Yeah, okay, so, so you, you, you have the walls and the roof and you have the structure, right? Now, what happens if that structure is crumbling? You didn't quite bake the gingerbread. What happens to the house? Falls apart, right? The physical side, I like to think of as the icing. The, and what happens when you, when you take a gingerbread house and you put it together with icing? What, what does that icing become? It's the glue, right? Without the icing, it just sort of falls apart, but you need the, the, the structure of it. But it's the glue that, that brings it together. And that's how God designed the physical intimacy, is that it's glue that bonds souls together. So within marriage, it takes the, the ultimate commitment we can make to another human being and adds glue to it, adds super glue to it. And so that's one of the presuppositions that we talked about last week is intimacy is a joining of souls. Last week we talked about we're to remain pure. And the definition of that is is stay away from all sexual activity outside of marriage. Period. But then as we come to today, the presupposition is also that God made us male and female. And He created marriage. And He created physical intimacy within marriage for our good. And that's the, problem, that's the, the, the area that several in the church of Corinth were struggling with. How can that be good? And so here in verse 2 and in verse 5, God says, pursue physical intimacy. It'll help you in a fallen world. It's what I've designed to create a, a hedge around your relationship. One of the things that will create a hedge. It's interesting because sometimes we read verse 2 and it says each man should have his own wife. And in our usage of should, um, it, we think of it as an option. But the wording there is an imperative. It's a command. And it's not a command to be married. He deals with that a little bit later in the chapter. But it's a command that if you are married, to be cultivating that intimacy together. It's not an option. See, when we let intimacy go in marriage, and all kinds of intimacy, spiritual and emotional and physical, when we let that go, we open ourselves up for Satan's attacks. That's what verse 5 is talking about. When it says, then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And in life, when it gets so busy, when kids come into the picture and multiple kids and they're young kids and there's just hecticness and work schedules, it can be very difficult to put a priority on this side of marriage relationships. But God says, make sure it's important. Make sure it's part of your relationship. So verse 2 and verse 5, pursue physical intimacy within marriage to fight sexual temptations. Then he moves in and then the layer goes in, verse 3 and the beginning of verse 5, intentionally give your spouse the, the intimacy that God designed for marriage. The idea is put a priority on your spouse's needs. And, and let's read verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Jump down to verse 5, the, the corresponding parallel. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. And the focus of both of these, especially verse 3, is that you give, or, or your, 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 your thought process is, how can I meet your needs? Not how can I have my needs met, but how can I meet your needs in every area of marriage, and in this case specifically physically? 
The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That can be translated, what is her due or what she can, can rightfully expect in marriage. And likewise, the, the wife to her husband. Now, he's not setting up here a dreaded duty. You know, when, when we, we read that sometimes, we can be like, oh great, okay, so I have to somehow find a way to be close to my wife or my husband. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a heart that, that wants so much to give and to love and to minister and to be a servant to our spouse that we will find ways to build them up, to meet their needs, to be intimate with them. And one of the questions asked is, how should my, my spouse be treated? Not how should I be treated. And, that's, and we're going to get to that in the next verse. But how should my spouse be treated? So many times, our, our focus is about what I want, how I should be treated, what my rights are. And that's not what these verses are saying. We need to focus on our spouse. Intentionally meeting their needs. Giving them the intimacy that God has designed in marriage. Verse 5, the, the, the parallel verse, 5a, and this is a powerful verse, do not deprive one another. And you know, we can chuckle at that and think of our schedules or whatever, but the word for deprive there actually means to rob or to defraud or to steal. It is a strong, strong word. And says, in marriage... When, when we intentionally take the physical aspect out, and I would argue all intimacy out, we are stealing and robbing part of what God has intended for marriage from our spouse. That is a strong statement. Who knew God's Word talked about these things? One author said, to withhold sexual intimacy in marriage is to commit robbery and to open the door for Satan. Those are two of the results. This is one of the areas, and in, in, as, as I think through the topic of marriage, it's an area where, where I've had opportunity to do a lot of counseling and to meet with a lot of couples and, and to work through a lot of issues. But one of the, the, the things that I hear sometimes is, is that there's a tendency to treat the physical side of our relationship as a weapon or as a tool. And so sometimes you can hear, and, and not to get too explicit here, but sometimes it's like, well, if you would do such and such, I would do this. Or if you don't, you're, you're not sleeping in my room tonight. We joke about that, but understand biblically, those are sinful statements. Those are selfish statements. Because it's using something that God created as the glue in marriage, as the union of souls, as a weapon to get what I want. And instead of giving, which is intentionally give is this point, instead of giving and ministering and serving my spouse, I'm now trying to take and demand and expect. And I think, really? Really? You would use the rending of your souls as a weapon to get what you want? For those that are married, God has designed marriage and intimacy to work a certain way. Don't mess with what God has designed. We can work things out in different ways. 
But don't mess with what God has designed. He's going to talk about that later and we're going to cover it this morning as well when he talks about divorce. Again, we sometimes use divorce as a weapon and as a way to get our way and a way to get what we want. And that again is a rending of the souls and an abomination to God. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. And he gives one exception in verse 5, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again. And so it's to be an exception with a limited amount of time, a specific purpose, and that purpose is to dedicate ourselves to, to our spiritual walk with God. And what that shows us by implication, it shows us the importance, men and women, of our walk with God in our marriages. If the only reason God gives for separating physically is to dedicate yourselves to making sure you're right with God, it's got to be pretty important. And so when we think of marriage principles, where is your commitment to God, men and women? Is He first and foremost in your life? Are you in prayer? Are you in communion with Him? Are we in in spiritual intimacy with God because that affects our ability to connect and join together in our marriages? Singles that are here. Some of you are looking for spouses. Some of you are dating. Some of you are engaged. The first question I always encourage you to ask is, does the other love God more than you? Does he or she love God more than you? If they don't, you're in for trouble. Guaranteed. Because God is our foundation. This relationship has to be right for this to be relationship to be beautiful. One other thing to note in these verses, and, and this, is, this is, was a huge shocker for the church at Corinth. As Paul writes this, the shocker wasn't that he was talking about physical intimacy. The shocker was the equality between husbands and wives. Because in their culture... Everything was about the husband and and meeting the husband's needs and his whims and what he wanted. And what have we seen so far in every verse? And we're going to see it in verse 4 too. We see a a mutuality in marriage. Husbands should meet their wives' needs. Wives should meet their husbands' needs. We'll see that again in 4 when he says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And what Paul is saying is very countercultural, but he's talking about true connection between a husband and wife. There's a mutuality. It's not one dominating over the other. It's not one getting their way and others not. It's about both striving to connect and to meet each other's needs. And that's when it works. That's what God designed. So married couples, intentionally give your spouse the intimacy that God designed for marriage. I intentionally put the word intentionally in there. So now you'll remember intentionally. What does intentionally imply? It means having a directed purpose and taking the time, taking the energy to make sure this happens. Putting a priority on it. In busy lives, we have to put a priority on connecting with our spouses. Connect first in in speech, in talk, making sure we're communicating. Connect emotionally. And then make sure we're connecting in all areas. Verse 4, coming to the, the central focus of this passage. Everything has come to this verse. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the, but, but the wife does. And this is the bigger principle. This is the foundation for what Paul is talking about here. The married person belongs to their spouse. The married person belongs to their spouse. The principle here is, I am not my own if I'm married. Do you remember the end of verse six or chapter 6? Just look up at verse 20 and, and actually the end of verse 19. You are not your own. And Paul is, is giving the bigger principle here that we are bought with a price by God Almighty, by Jesus Christ. So glorify God in your body. And then chapter 7 is, okay, how do you glorify God in your body? This is how. By following His instructions. By doing things the way He has designed. And one of the things, what the idea here is, we are not our own. We are purchased by God. And God has designed us then to belong to our spouse. And He's allowed to say that because He owns us. And so He can say, I own you. And so now she owns you too. Or He owns you too. And when we think of that, our, our first thought often is, oh man, I am not going to be owned by anyone. I will not be, be controlled by anyone and our whole independence comes up. It's not talking about that. It's talking we belong to each other. There's a mutuality of servanthood. I've been given by God to my spouse. I've been given to Susie to meet her needs, to serve her, to minister to her. But she's been given by God to me, to meet my needs, to serve, to minister. And those aren't negative things. Think of what some of the, the, the outcomes of this idea that I belong to her and she belongs to me and, and spouses. One of the, the results of that is the concept of exclusivity. If, if I belong to her and she belongs to me, that doesn't leave room for a third party. And so foundational to even staying away from, from affairs and sexual immorality is we belong to each other and it's a two-party contract, three if you include God, and that's it. Any intrusion to that is contrary to how it works and what God has designed. So we can talk about exclusivity, but the, the foundation, the reason for that is because we belong to each other. It also, another implication, like I said, is the idea of serving one another. There's an obligation to each other. Garland, one of the authors, um, wrote, both husband and wife are to recognize that their spouse has a greater claim on them than they have on themselves. I like that. Their spouse has a greater claim on them than they have on themselves. Susie has a greater claim on me than I do. Sometimes uh, I, I word this a different way. You can't be married and single at the same time. If I'm married, I know, obvious statement of the day, right? But what I mean is, I no longer am living for myself. I mean, number one, I should be living for God anyway. But when I get married, now I'm living to please my spouse, to serve her. She has a right to me. Verse 4, as it says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body or control. The word for body there, soma in the Greek, is most often used not just of our physical body, but of our entire self. And so the foundation here is not just that my body belongs to my wife, but my whole person belongs to my wife. 
But how many times in marriage do we get upset because I'm not being treated the way I want? Or I'm not getting the whatever thing that I want. I'm not getting my way. Is that reflective of we belong to each other? No, that's me trying to be single and saying, I, I don't belong to anyone. This is part of why Paul is going to argue it later in the chapter the benefits of being single is we're not owned by someone else and so we can have a sole focus of being dedicated to God. We'll talk about that in two weeks. 1 Corinthians 13.5, as he talks, uh, Paul later, we're going to study, talks about love. One of the characteristics of love, he says, it does not insist on getting its own way. Now, as we think about belonging to one another, this brings in the whole of marriage, the whole of our relationship. The passage, while it's directly talking about physical intimacy in relationships, it's talking about a much greater issue of, of complete intimacy in, in relationships in every area of our lives. I serve my wife by loving her the way she, she responds to love, by talking with her. By asking her about her day. She loves to talk about her day and give me sort of a detailed blow-by-blow of her day. I cultivate intimacy by, by being ready to listen. By sitting and listening. Now, now, straight up, I've got to tell you, I'm not always very good at that. Sometimes I come home from work and I don't want to listen to anyone. And I hope I'm not alone there. Otherwise, yeah, oh well, it's just me. Sometimes I've had a hard day and, and, and so I try the best I can to on my drive home be preparing myself to be home because I belong to her. And she does the same thing back for me. She can sense when I walk in the door, I think within 10 seconds, what kind of day I've had. And, and sometimes I've heard her say, kids, let's, um, let's just give daddy a few minutes. He's not quite home yet. <laughs> That's her serving me. Do you, do you see the mutuality? The more that we try to serve each other and care about each other and minister to each other, the better it works. At weddings, I often say, when two people fight to get their needs met, nobody's needs are met. When two people fight to meet each other's needs, everyone's needs are met. It's just the way God designed it. And it's this concept in verse 4. We belong to each other. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 I think is a, a great theological foundation for this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Husbands, put your wives' needs before yours. Wives, put your, your husbands' needs before yours. Be willing to sacrifice, schedule, interests, Time. Now Paul isn't here saying in, in this idea of belonging to one another, and this is the, the one thing that I want to make sure that we understand, he, he's not giving license to control one another. He's not giving license for abuse. I've seen these verses abused in so many different ways. I've seen them abused by husbands who want to domineer and control their wives and and, and It's not what it's talking about. It violates the very point of the passage. 
that it's about meeting each other's needs and you belong to each other. Paul is not saying we're property. But he's saying we're two souls that are mingled together seeking to love and be intimate with each other. Everything is to be undergirded by love for each other and their well-being. So Paul here makes a strong case for sexual intimacy in marriage. The first thing he mentioned was that it protects ourselves from temptation. It, it, it doesn't stop temptation, but it gives us a protection and a guard against it. The second thing he mentions is we need to be intentional about cultivating this intimacy in our, our relationships. Make sure it doesn't go by the wayside. Even for prayer, only for a short time. It's that important. But finally, the, the, the overriding principle is that we belong to each other. We belong to our spouse. So how do you do this? How, how do you nurture closeness? And, and I'm going to ask our married couples, will, will, you, will you do some things for me for a week? Will you practice some things for me for a week? The first is, sometime this week, ask your spouse what their love language is. For those of you that don't know love languages, you can just ask, what, what makes you feel close to me? Start the conversation. If, if we're talking about physical intimacy in marriage, we have to talk about all of intimacy. And it starts by talking. The five love languages, for those that remember them, words of affirmation, acts of service, touch, quality time, and gifts. And, and, and just sometime this week, if you're married, ask your spouse, how can I show you I care about you? This is something Susie and I do at least once a year um, on our anniversary trip. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, it's a question we asked. It changes from time to time. But it's how that we can make sure we're knowing each other and, and how we're ticking and, and, and how we can really show that intimacy and care. Try that this week. One story I heard about a, a, another married couple was that one of their practices to stay close in marriage is every day they would make sure they kissed for at least 15 seconds. You're probably thinking, you're nuts. But think about that. 15 seconds is long enough to be more than just a peck on the cheek, goodbye, and more than just the general routine. It's enough that you begin to connect and you make eye contact and it shows that you're, you've stopped and paused long enough. 15 seconds isn't that long. Let's just get that out of the way. You've stopped and paused long enough to put a priority on your spouse. If you're married, try that this week. Every day. Again, an experiment for married couples. How can we cultivate the intimacy God has designed? Try kissing your spouse. 15 seconds every day. It's not cumulative, by the way. <laughs> well, I got my half second out of the way this morning. <laughs> at one time. If you and your spouse are struggling and you're angry at each other and you're frustrated with each other, that might be the hardest thing I ask you to do this week. And it forces you to begin to deal with underlying issues. And I think that's part of why Paul is saying this is so important. When we put a priority on physical intimacy, we're forcing ourselves to deal with other issues that are blocking Okay, so ask your spouse what your love language is. Make sure you kiss them for at least 15 seconds every day. Do something entirely for the other person every day this week. 
not expecting anything in return. Something maybe even sacrificial. Susie and I were talking about these, and she's like, well, I don't know if I have time to do that every day this week, because we're busy. Because her thought is, I'm thinking something big, right? Okay, I'm going to you know, take you somewhere or do something. Think little. Think of leaving a note. Do something entirely for the other person. A note that encourages them. A phone call. Maybe it's, it's, it's some small task around the house that you know they have to do when they get home. Sometimes we think so big that we miss the little things that are the life of a marriage. Remember the life of a marriage. Fourth thing in your one-week experiment is every day, spouses, nurture your commitment to God by praying together. Every day, pray together. I'm not counting meals in this. Something outside of meals where you actually share a prayer request, you actually hear and listen to the other person, pray with each other. Intimacy is not something to demand. It is a gift to be given. I challenge us that are married to treasure marriage. Treasure all aspects of marriage. Treasure physical intimacy within marriage. It's given by God. Let's make sure we treat it as a gift from God. Paul then moves on. So verses 1 through 5 are to, to those that are married. And verses 6 through 9 are to those that are single. And, and actually, it's an introduction to what he's going to talk about the whole last third of the chapter. And so we'll briefly talk about it because in two weeks that'll be our, our whole topic. But to those that are single, singleness is also good and a gift from God. Use it for God's glory. Singleness is also good and a gift from God. Use it for God's glory. Verse 6, let's read together. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Whole lot of discussion of what that verse means. What does this refer to? What does concession mean? Um, we think of concession as well. You know, I'm going to give you a little tidbit of something because I'm going to give you permission, but it's not really good. It's not what they meant it as. It was, hey, this is okay too. The this, some think it's referring to marriage. Some people think it's referring to verse 5 where he says, um, you can separate from each other for a time for prayer. Some people think it's verses 7 through 8. I probably lean towards the prayer one. But we don't want to get stuck there. Now, as a concession, not a command, and what Paul is saying, basically what he's saying is there's several options here. There's several ways. I'm not going to command you to do one thing or the other. I'm not going to command you to be married. I'm not going to command you to be single. Because then he goes on to say, I wish that all were as I, am, I myself am. And Paul is single at this time. He's going to say that in the next verse. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And we see Paul's theology here is some are gifted and called to be single. Some are gifted and called to be married. So follow your gifting and call. And follow it wholeheartedly and glorify God in it. There was pressure in the culture to be married. Pressure for financial security, for your future, for, for having children that would ensure your future. And he's saying you don't have to give in to that pressure. So in verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better, better to marry than to burn with passion. And he's speaking here of how God has gifted and called he says, 
I'm single. It, and think of Paul's life. He's going from town to town. He's getting stoned. He's getting shipwrecked. Not the thing you really want to bring a wife and kids along for. For him, he was able to glorify God and to serve God in ways that were beyond compare because of where he was in life. He was called to that. And, and But yet, to, the, to those that aren't called to that, the, those that want to be married and desire the physical intimacy of marriage, he says, get married! Then that's what you're called to do. But view each as a gift. View each as what God has called us to do. And let's not look down on either. God will give us the grace for whatever standing He calls us to in life. And next week we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to be content with where we're at as as AJ shares with us next week from God's Word as he prepares to be in ministry. But his point, and and we'll get to this and we'll fill this out in a couple weeks, his point is take your standing in life and use it for God's glory. Don't keep wishing for the other. So many times... I see people that are married wishing they were single and people that are single wishing that they were married. The grass is always greener on the other side, it seems like. But really, God says, glorify me where you're at and see what I do. And finally, verses 10-16, through 16, to those contemplating ending a marriage, don't. God's plan for marriage is for it to be a real permanent, lifelong commitment and bond. And so so he comes back to the idea of marriage and how to make a lasting marriage. He's talked about intimacy in marriage, but now, what about when things aren't going well? What about when things are falling apart? And he has different categories of people. In in the first, in verses 10-11, to he's going to talk to the married believers, where both partners are, are believers. And he says, "...to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord." And we'll see that phrase, and he uses that several times, both this is from me, not from the Lord. And he's not talking about one is more important than the other. Here he's talking, when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's saying Jesus directly taught this. When he says, okay, this isn't what Jesus, this isn't from, from the Lord, but from me, he's saying, well, Jesus didn't directly teach this, but through the Holy Spirit, I'm teaching you this. And so he's clarifying, and in verse 10 he says, okay, Jesus directly taught this. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And here again, marriage was under attack at Corinth, just like it is today. It was easy to get divorced. Husbands were divorcing their wives because they burnt their toast. But God's Word says, no, this is permanent. That commitment is what allows us to make it work. That commitment to say, we're in this for the long haul, we're in this for good, is what motivates us to make it work. Unfortunately, there's no longer a stigma attached to divorce. People plan on it. But God is saying, plan on success. Plan on permanence. And I I, I think of when Cortez landed in Mexico... And he landed, and they're they're trying to make a life in Mexico. Do you remember what he did? What? He burnt the ships. We need to burn the ships in marriage. 
So there's no going back. This is home. We're going to make this work. That commitment forces us to make it work. If we can't make it work in one relationship, more than likely we'll carry those same problems into our next relationship. So we might as well make it work now. Mark 10, some of the teaching of Jesus on this. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And he's talking about that union, the union of souls, both spiritually and in the commitment of the marriage commitment, and, and with, with the physical coming and adding the icing in that, the glue in that. We need to hold marriage as a permanent bond and in high esteem. If we leave that, the way out of divorce, we increase our chances that we'll take that way out exponentially. There's only two exceptions to this command in Scripture. The first we're going to see a little bit later, in the, well, in the next verses, we'll cover it this morning. The first is if you're married to an unbeliever and they want out. That's one of the exceptions that God says that is, is one of the ways that I view the marriage relationship is dissolved. The other exception is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, as he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, unless there has been unfaithfulness, unless there is marital unfaithfulness, divorce is not even an option. Now, now keep in mind, even if those things do happen, God can still do miracles. Our first course of action is always reconciliation. See what God does. We don't jump to the nuclear option. It's interesting, in, in this passage, in verse 10 and 11, it talks about that even if you do get a divorce, and if it's not for the biblical reasons, then your only two options are either reconciliation or staying single. And that, that sounds harsh in our society. That, that sounds so constricting. I've had people say, well, you know, I, I divorced my spouse and now I've asked for forgiveness, so now I'm free. Well, no, not biblically. Because the, the concept here is a marriage isn't over until God says it's over. What we do to nullify a marriage with a divorce contract doesn't end the marriage in God's eyes. And so that's why when, when Jesus was teaching... And when he was teaching about divorce, he said, if you get remarried, you are causing that person to commit adultery. Why? Because in God's eyes, we're still married. In this case, if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Why? Because God still views her as married. And that applies to the man as well. And so with, within, other than those two exceptions... For ending a marriage, third exception would be if your, your spouse dies, but that's, that's not by choice. Other than those two exceptions, there are no other reasons that are biblical reasons for ending a marriage. That is the kind of glue and bond and permanence that is required to make it work. Susie and I were flipping around the channel. We just came across a show that we haven't watched much, but it was, it was fascinating to, to hear. It's called Married at First Sight. Not recommending the show, but you know how you just flip through. And their premise 
was they actually had two people get married that had never met each other before. Sort of weird. Um, but experts put them together. The premise, and I thought this was profound, one of the counselors said, we wanted to see that if the commitment of marriage was there, would they resolve more difficulties? And overwhelmingly, that's what happened. Even the world recognizes that when we burn the ships, when we say, this is, this is us, we will make this work, we're more, than like, we're more likely to solve our issues. Marriage is a gift of God. He has called some to it. He has equipped some for it. Don't take that lightly. View it as permanent. Verse 12 to the end of the chapter deals with that other exception. And this probably happened in Corinth. You probably had one spouse accept Christ. The other was still an unbeliever. Some were saying, well, maybe we should get divorced because now it's a, a, an unequally yoked marriage. And Paul's like, no, wait a minute. To the rest I say, and he's now talking to the believer married to an unbeliever. To the rest I say, and I not the Lord. He's, and, and again, he's saying Jesus didn't explicitly teach that, but I'm teaching this. And in verse 40, he says, by the Holy Spirit, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And and he's setting up a case here that says, if your spouse isn't a believer, and some of you here, your spouse isn't a believer, and what do you do? And he's saying, if they want to stay with you, stay with them. And be the best visual of Jesus Christ that you can be. Your love and your commitment will show them Christ. The idea of making holy here isn't salvation. We see that in verse 16, that they're not saved. But the idea of they're now set apart for the Gospel. They're now set apart to see the Gospel in a whole new way. Probably was also a reference to the Old Testament clean and unclean laws and and saying, no, they, they don't make you unclean, but you make them because this marriage is holy and you are walking with God, you make them clean. Not in the sense of salvation, but in, in, in ritual purity. But his point is, stay with them and man, be Jesus. Show them Jesus in your actions. And he goes on to say that, verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. You're not bound, he's saying. They're not a believer. If they go their way, you're free. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And that comes back to how we should live in, in relationship, especially if our spouse is an unbeliever. One of peace. One of relationship. Verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And he says, how do you know? Stay in that relationship as hard as it is because God might use you to help their soul spend eternity in heaven. And that is a huge, huge deal. Some of you are married to unbelievers and your heart so desperately wants them to come to Christ. And we pray with you 
And I commend you for allowing your life to be the greatest testimony they'll ever see. And we stand with you. Some of you have had unbelieving spouses leave you. And we stand with you as, as your church family and say, we are here for you. And those that are married, pursue it. Grab hold of it. It is God's precious gift for you. Cultivate intimacy. Cultivate closeness. Don't let that relationship die. Healthy relationship exhibits God. It exhibits God's relationship with His church. It is a light in a very dark world that people will ask you, how are you keeping your marriage strong? Because it's that rare. Don't miss those opportunities. And tell them. Tell them how. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, You have given us so many instructions for relationships. And Lord, these scratch the surface. I know there's people sitting in this room that are thinking, what about my situation? How does that apply? Where does this fall? Lord, I pray that you would use the truth of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit to work in every unique situation in this room. Lord, I pray for strong marriages. I pray for close marriages, marriages that are full of joy, that are full of fun, that are full of closeness, that are full of intimacy. Lord, I pray for marriages that follow your design and your creation. Lord, may we take the time and the effort to get past ourselves to make that happen. And Lord, I I do pray for those that have lost spouses and the hurt and the pain that goes with that. I pray that you would bring comfort, that you would bring renewed um, opportunities for ministry within the family, within the church family. Lord, I, I pray for our singles that are here. Lord, some that are, are called to singleness and, and some that are, are wishing that they were married. I pray that You would bring a contentment and a joy that says, where God has me now, I can serve God in incredible ways. Lord, I pray that we would not look down on each other for any of those states. But as a family of God, we can come together and say, for all of us, we are bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. So let's glorify God with our whole self. In Jesus' name.